0: Like a Word. About self-publishing and sex, among other things. I'm Paul Waters.
1: And I'm Stephen Colgan.
0: And you're listening to Weed Like a Word. And our guest this time is Jacob Kelly, former head of publicity for Kindle Direct Publishing and Amazon Publishing, author of The Smell of Good Decisions, and... He manages executive communications for Mozilla. That does Firefox, the browser. Ah! But the main thing we're talking about, self-publishing, and kind of an insider's view of Kindle Direct Publishing and Amazon. We'll be talking about gay literature, and we'll also be talking about writing about sex. So just to give you that warning, if you're offended by... Talk of self-publishing—you might want to stop listening now. <laughs> Otherwise, we will carry on.
1: I should also add that a little bit later on, we'll be joined by Andrew Chapman as well, who's another self-published author.
0: Yeah, you say, hey, we do phone nights. We on do, this show. we do. We've it's got exciting. the technology, and a lot of people have got in touch with a lot of things to tell us, so we'll be covering that too. But I guess we should maybe start with hearing a bit about your book, Jake. Hi. Yeah. So. Tell us a bit about it and then maybe read a bit from it. Yeah, well, thank you for having me,
2: for, uh, first off. It's so much fun to be here after listening to so many episodes over in uh, San Francisco where I live. He um, lives in San Francisco. And he
0: listens. Oh. And he's
1: come to do our podcast. Where are we today? High Wickham in Buckinghamshire.
0: Oh, the other thing is he's brought some biscuits. He followed advice on Twitter and brought some uh, custard creams. And some jammy dodgers because which
1: is pretty good because it's added good. to the pile that we've already got here of jaffa cakes and because
0: you don't like caramel chocolates. digestives. But hold on, you did you bring these caramel yeah, digestives? Yeah, no probably for you.
1: Oh. And, and I
2: notice you're keeping them far oh, away nice. from me. Is that kind of right? Uh, like, oh, no, get no, one no. if I give a good answer? No, 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 no. You just reach <laughs> in and grab. That's, <laughs> okay. well, well, that's we we, we thought we'd let you get started first no, right. before we... I might even open a Jaffa Cake while, okay. you, while you're chatting. Well, now you're really dangling the carrot in front of me, because Steve knows that Jaffa Cakes are my favorite. We'll get to the dangling, <laughs> dangling <laughs> the <laughs> carrot.
0: That comes later. But t- t- <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us a bit about the smell <laughs> of good decisions. Sure. The
2: Smell of Good Decisions is uh, a sci-fi novel set in present-day San Francisco. Um, You know the myth that we only use 10% of our brains? Well, I imagined that we actually only use 10% of our sense of smell. And in this book, the military weaponizes the other 90% into a spray which, when worn by soldiers, allows them to detect fear in other soldiers. Then I took two gay men and two straight women in San Francisco and made them the unwitting subjects of the last test for this spray. Um, and then essentially, as they discover that they're not just trying any old deodorant, uh, they're actually super-powered in the nose. Um, it's the story of what they then do with that power, each of them. Because that's
1: quite interesting in its own right. I mean, you said about the myth of the 10% of the brain, but, but the thing about smell is it makes up about 65% of your sense of taste as well mm-hmm. so if you super amplified your sense of smell your sense of taste would go through the roof as well wouldn't it
0: I imagine having a, a really fantastic sense of smell could be a torment <laughs> if
1: but you it live next to the f- sewage works yeah absolutely in, in parts of
2: San Francisco it really would be a torment yeah. <laughs> and
0: there are lots of unpleasant things it just could be overwhelming unbearable yeah yeah like nose telepathy
1: <laughs> you just you're just being crowded in by everyone else's stinks
0: Mm. Oh my goodness! No, I don't like the sound of it. I would never.
1: I, <laughs> it's kind of dystopian. <laughs> it's interesting. You could never you get that. into
0: a lift or an elevator for fear of what might go off when you were trapped inside. <laughs> it. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I was going to say, give us some examples of how they they use some. Yes, of Yes,
2: yeah, absolutely. So, for example, uh, Daryl, one of my two gay characters, is just doing a regular shop in Safeway, um, the Safeway near where I live, when he detects. Uh, A man lighting up a meth pipe in the toilet of Safeway and a gas leak happening on the other side of Safeway. And only he can smell these things because he's superpowered. Uh, And then evacuates the entire store, even though no one understands why he's doing it. But he shouts loud enough, gets everyone out into the parking lot, just as this Safeway explodes, um, leaving everyone but the, the meth smoker inside.
0: And then you have the difficulty in explaining how you knew what was about to happen. But weren't involved in causing it. To well, yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, because so who's, who's going to believe? How could you possibly have known? So there's a TV reporter,
2: Claudia, who uh, is struggling to keep up in the ratings with her competitor, and she gets put on the trail of the various things that keep happening where these four characters intervene. Um, I was a TV and radio reporter. That's how you and I met uh, Paul at the BBC. And uh, so it was fun to use some of my old knowledge from, from that business. In the book, yeah, you were quite nice about
0: reporters, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I was expecting it to be a lot nastier.
2: I mostly worked with really nice ones. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Well, um, is there a part of it that you could read for us? Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, read from uh,
2: chapter two.
0: <clears throat> so, what's to give us a little bit of context? Sure. This is the um,
2: the introduction to Daryl, who is one of our two. Uh, ...gay characters and the person who detects uh, this incident... ...a little later on in Safeway. Chapter 2. Daryl looked up at the billboard across from the nondescript building... ...where the flyer offered him a quick way to make money. Old Spice, the mark of a man. The aftershave and deodorant maker had reintroduced one of its old taglines... ...in an effort to recapture nostalgia for the brand. He remembered being seduced by this campaign as a boy even when he barely had enough stubble to rate a shave. The combination of strong-jawed men with perfect hair and confident knowing smiles, plus Hollywood lighting, projected an image of the man he felt he was supposed to become. Funny, he thought, how everything came full circle, and cosmetic companies were convincing men again that a lotion, a cream, a spray, or a gel could reaffirm their sense of masculinity.
0: Very nice.
1: Caught you with a biscuit that time. He caught me. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got his own patard.
0: If there was crackling, that was Steve trying to <laughs> quietly open. Ever close with Jaffa, Jaffa cakes. cakes. There you
1: go. Finally, Jaffa cakes. And I, ga- I, I gave him. I gave him a
0: getting. look because uh-huh. I thought you're making too much crackling sound. <laughs> I like that kind of nostalgia. You know, old Spice. Mm. <laughs> mm. The mark of a man. Getting, some, getting. Some some still in. wear it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: still getting through the last ten Christmases. Worth, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh. And you. So the people. The, the four main characters sign up to one of these things where you get $200 if you uh, do a little test and they get this uh, deodorant mm-hmm. sprayed on them and that's what sets off their smell and their they're guinea pigs.
2: Right, and importantly, there are no ingredients on the side of the canister. They, there's no name. They have no idea really what it's supposed to do other than, quote-unquote, help you smell a better way. Mm. And then they dangle the character. Maybe it'll even make you more attractive to someone or detect if someone is attracted to you. Oh, so Which smell it does as a
1: verb instead of an adjective. Mm. Makes yes. you smell in a different way. In
0: various times, if there's, like, there are two guys who think, oh, I quite like him, oh, I quite like him. But because of this deodorant impact on them they kind of get down to business much more quickly. That's what Dal and
2: Jorge wonder through the book. Is this spray actually having that effect on them? Or could it be that they're better off trusting their natural inborn senses? Oh. Yeah, because
1: there was a bit of a thing for this in the 80s, wasn't there, with pheromone sprays and yeah. things like this, this idea that you could... I think, it was, Wasn't it pig pheromones or something? They were using these sprays, mm-hmm. and the idea was you could go into a sex shop and buy one of these sprays and... Make I yourself irresistible I, to women. I think it's the very first episode of Bottom, isn't it? Is where they go into the sex shop mm-hmm. and they try and buy the spray and they go ah, covering well, themselves in it. My favourite
2: yeah. uh, campaign was a few years ago. Here it was for Axe, which is sorry, Lynx, Lynx which is Lynx, Axe yes. in the US. Yes, yes. And uh, it was a picture of a, a young teenager in a cinema seat, um, and uh, he just got down to uh, watch the movie, and his girlfriend was sitting next to him, and the the words that were going up on the screen were something to the effect of "Thank God." He wore links, because if not, this would have happened, and suddenly the girl is replaced by a young man. <laughs> which, when you think about it, is a
3: little maybe I don't homophobic. Yeah, I do that one would have
2: run over here. No. Well, the gay population of England were in hysterics over this, because actually wearing deodorant <laughs> is not that popular among gay men. Right. Among some gay men, I would say. There's a contingent
0: that is very popular, but then there's a whole other contingent oh. which favours not. That is a weird it. advert. <laughs> it was, it didn't last long. No. Yeah. Well, get, okay, getting to your um, previous day job mm. as uh, former head of publicity for Kindle Direct Publishing and Amazon Publishing, what are they?
2: Yeah, so um, first of all, books are Amazon's uh, oldest business, and um, that's what attracted me to go and work for them, I think, because I've never been actually very technical in nature, even though I've la- spent the last 12 years in technology companies, um, but I love books books. I love authors. I love reading. And so Amazon Publishing is the managed publishing side of uh, their publishing business. It competes directly with the big five. And it's so that means
0: it's it's a publishing house. Yes. So absolutely. like uh, you have to, I, I don't know, get an agent. The agent submits to them and they decide, yeah, we want to publish it. Exactly. Just like uh, All of that. other ones. Right? The,
2: the, the differences kick in once you are acquired by Amazon Publishing, when they obviously because of Uh, who they are owned by, Amazon, Uh, they can pull digital levers for you as an author, um, which all authors can benefit from um, on Amazon. But if it's Amazon Publishing, you can just walk down the corridor and ask so-and-so if they can make sure there's a promotion um, for this book. And they'll have a polite discussion with you and tell you if you can do it or not. Um, The challenge for Amazon Publishing uh, on physical books is they find it almost impossible to get into... Physical bookstores because the big five have a stranglehold on them.
0: But also, our bookstores hate
2: Amazon. Yes. Yeah. So they might think, we hate you. <laughs> we're yeah. not letting you well, in. Yeah. You
1: kind of understand
2: it. Yeah. Mm. No, absolutely. You're trying to wipe this out. My aunt and uncle ran a bookstore in Ottery St. Mary when I was a kid, and um, I, I wish they were both alive now so I could ask them what they think about this. Because then, uh, when Amazon uh, had sort of put up with that for a while, a few years ago while I was there, they launched the Amazon Bookstore, a physical yeah. bookstore. First one was in Seattle, um, and the big kind of the USP for them is that all of the books are cover-side out, which reduces the number of books they can sell, but makes for a very pretty store. Um, interestingly, at least while I was working there, I don't know if this is the case now, um, being an Amazon-published book author did not get
0: you a guaranteed slot in an Amazon bookstore. Okay, so then that's kind of conventional. Yeah. And then Kindle Direct Publishing.
2: Right. Kindle Direct Publishing started 2007. And the big benefits now of self-publishing are you get to keep up to 70% of the royalties, um, control of your work for life. Um, you can change it whenever you want. Uh, and ease of getting to market.
0: And when you say control of it, you mean you can change the text, fiddle with it forever fiddle and forever, which is oh, but, no. Right.
2: <laughs> a blessing and a curse. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, too long. Um, so that's been around for twelve years. Um, those are the benefits. The problems that KDP has. Um, are they're constantly trying to get ahead of this. Are people and people who control bots that game the Amazon system by stuffing keywords into fake books and trying to push them up in their ratings.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, from the author point of view as well. It's it's kind of trying to get yourself noticed. Yeah. is is very very difficult with um KDP. Yeah, very very difficult because it, you're in a sea of other stuff and um I mean it's where I mean talking to someone about this recently it's where they were saying that you know the value of having a really good cover mm-hmm. uh makes a massive massive difference where because we went through a phase where when sort of 3 out of every 5 books were being bought online people were thinking oh, I don't need to worry about the cover too much. It was the same with CDs when we went from 12-inch LPs which quite often used to sell a band because of the album cover and we went to CDs, that was the same. But, of course, then it went over to downloads and you didn't even have those, but they were saying that, oh, no, 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 you need the covers to attract people in the first place. So the mm. covers have kind of come back now. <laughs> and I think it, it's the same. Unless if you've got a good cover and you're doing Kindle Direct Publishing, that will help you more than, than possibly your blurb will because that's the first thing someone sees
2: on right. the screen. So the, the best piece of advice to a, a self-published author I can give who's... Getting their first cover design is does it pass the thumbnail test? Because essentially, if the title is illegible over your design or under your design at that um, size, then it's and also uh, illegible. He
0: is holding up his thumb. Holding up my thumb. Well, the clue the was in <laughs> thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs>
2: then it's also illegible as an icon on the Amazon. Yeah, edition. yeah, that's, um, a good, that's a good point.
0: So it has to be simple, clear, striking. Yeah. There are lots of covers that just wouldn't uh, of normal books that just wouldn't work. Yeah. Like that, and. I know I did one called The Obiturist and the cover of that was read with the name of the book, my name and it was a, a hand grenade I think, a stylized hand grenade and that was it I thought, well, that's spare and straightforward yeah. If you look at my last
1: two books they are based around the typography
0: So this is A Murder to Die For and The Diabolical Club yeah, yeah. They're both really clever covers done by the guy who does Bill Bryson's books Neil Gower,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Fantastic distinctive, I, I think they're wonderful. I wonder, would they work as thumbnails, though?
1: They do, yeah, because they're quite clear and readable, because the actual typeface, the, the title of the book, takes up probably about 60% of the cover. Yeah, So they, they do pop out on the screen, mm. which I think helps.
0: Um, questions. John Griffiths has got in touch mm-hmm. to say, uh, what is the connection between putting an e-book on Kindle Direct Publishing and having a print-on-demand version alongside, presumably in paperback, can that be part of the deal? At present, I am providing paperback to Amazon at hugely disadvantageous terms to myself, and what I would like to do would be to submit an ebook, which is printed in parallel by Amazon. How do I go about doing this?
2: Well, John, um, I'd actually love to meet you and ask you a few more questions hmm. to know more about your experience. And first of all, I'll say I'm, I'm no longer at Amazon, so the, the insight I'm gonna give you is, is uh, could be a couple of years old in that sense. Um, but, uh, he's an outsider insider. I'm an outsider insider yeah um, you know the way I did it was I did upload a manuscript to uh, KDP for digital publication and then there's a simple switch that you, you toggle and um, that turns it into a manuscript for print that manuscript is something you have to pay a lot more attention to um, because uh, for digital they'll they basically format the words to fit the Pages beautifully because you could be using any font size to read it. Um, for print, obviously, you have to be uh, taking a closer. look
0: You have at to it. choose.
2: Yeah, I probably haven't completely answered your question, but it has gotten easier. I would say.
0: Okay. Um. Here's another one from Tim Atkinson. He says, "Why can't you run a price promotion or similar deal with the KDP paperback like you can do with an ebook? I'd really love to run a price discount periodically." but all I seem to be able to do is reduce the price pro tem, with no reference to the fact that it's a discount.
2: That's a great question, and I'll I'll straight up say, first of all, I don't know the answer, Um, uh, and we'll get on to why money is less important to me later, but I would say that the likelihood of that is that the very nature of print-on-demand means you, or or your readers, control in their hands the, the speed and scale at which your book is published. If only three people order your book, that's fine. We'll print Amazon will print three copies. If three million, they'll do the same. and I think it's harder for Amazon to then kind of help you manipulate the price structure that way than it is with digital, which is just
0: faster okay. um, with some category questions, uh, Jeffrey Gudgeon, author of Saxon's Bane, uh, says for those of us writing cross genre, can Amazon please start a genre category of inverted commas? Positively identifying as not quite sure.
2: <laughs> Positively identifying as not quite sure. Well, I mean,
0: so, it, so genre is an important thing. You have to label yeah. stuff. Well, how important is it getting your okay. labeling, tagging? Incredibly
2: important because that oh. is the first keyword that works on Amazon, right? I've got a story
1: there. <laughs> I bought out a non fiction book, oh, God, it must be five years ago now. And it was called, Why Did the Policeman Cross the Road? And it was all about the future of policing and how it should be more proactive instead of reactive. And um, the problem we had, it hadn't been categorised very clearly so you'd go into some bookshops and you'd find it in the law section, mm. sitting between something on the Corn Laws or something about the history of weaving laws and things like this. Or you'd find it in autobiography, because there was a little bit of autobiography in there. Or, as I found in one particular Waterstones, it was in the humour section. I think they thought it was a joke <laughs> book because of the title. Fair and, enough. <laughs> yeah, and and the only one that seemed to get it right, I hate to say it, was was because I love bookshops, but Amazon seemed to get it right, and they put it in as kind of smart thinking, and it was there with with a lot of the other smart thinking books that were popular at the time, which is, I think, possibly because I had a cover quote on the front from Stephen Dubner, who wrote for economics. But, yeah, the categorization thing, it absolutely destroyed the hardback mm. version of the book, which didn't do as well as it should have done. So when the paperback came out, mm. they changed the title to One Step Ahead.
0: Um, another question from Stephanie Brotherton. I have to give you some context for this before you answer it. So her question, first of all, is, can Amazon please start an official category of Cli-Fi? Now We were talking about various things in advance of you coming on the uh, podcast, and there was a lot lot of talk about sex, writing about sex, so a bit of back and forth about that, and then Stephanie puts this, can Amazon please start an official category of cli and I thought, oh yes, how interesting, presuming that she was following the writing about (laughs) sex theme, and... It turned no. out I was wrong in what I thought <laughs> so
3: <were>. cli-fi was. <laughs> yes. um,
0: can I guess? Um, you can. I, I think probably everyone can guess. <laughs> okay. um, anyway, it turns out it wasn't what I thought. Uh, and it turns out it's like climate change fiction, cli-fi, climate change mm-hmm. fiction. And um, I know when uh, Alison Finch was on, she was saying that's that's the yeah, next. Yeah, it's going to be massive next year. The big thing. So what about that? The
2: question is, could Amazon uh, change that So or add that? Um, again, not an official Amazon spokesman. But, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. They it is within their power to do that. I mean, um,
0: how, how kind of nimble are they at that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and not an easy one to answer. Um,
0: I suppose they want any if there's a trend that they can benefit yeah. from, they'll they want to.
2: At the end of the day, you know, the company is that that part is full of book lovers, but they are running a business that is very data driven, and enough if, if enough people ask for CliFi as a category and produce works that fit into it it'll happen.
0: I suppose it could be a cross genre genre it could be a bit climate and a bit what I mistakenly thought it was to begin with. Maybe that's not a winning idea.
1: It's going to get cold isn't it? That's <laughs> true. <right. laughs> oh sex in six No it's, going to, it's oh. going to be warming up. <laughs> oh well yeah it's true it's warming up isn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah. A lot of warming going on. <clears throat> Hot stuff that's what we call the category. Jacob Kelly the author of The Smell of Good Decisions is with us. On the award-winning Wickham Sound FM. Last show we had a brain teaser. We did. What was it?
1: Yeah, it was based on a um, when I had lunch with Terry Jones, and he told me that one of the things he was most proud of was the fact that four films had been banned in Ireland, and he directed three of them. Now, we asked, what were the three films, and what was the film that got banned that he didn't direct?
0: Okay, and the answer...
1: Well, the answer is. Did anyone get it right, by the way? Yeah.
0: Uh, yes. Um, various people got it right. I don't want to name them all, because uh, I'm going to name some of them in oh, a he, right? separately. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the answer was that the three he directed were, unsurprisingly, The Life of Brian, The Meaning of Life, one that may have tripped people up, Personal Services. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, was the that? The story a... of Madam Sin, who ran the Cynthia brothel. Cynthia Payne, Cynthia Payne, yeah. Cynthia yeah, Payne, yeah. yeah. He, he directed that particular movie. And the one he didn't direct was The Last Temptation of mm-hmm. Christ.
0: Okay. So there you go. Um, staying with the censored banned books theme, not an answer to the question, but Paulo, uh, Paulo Dwyer in Dublin got in touch to say that in oh, 1984, he was that was banned in Miami. Apparently, he was told many years ago, and also in Ireland, it was banned in Ireland as well. And also, he sent a little copy of a letter he received from the Department of Justice in Dublin in nineteen sixty seven, and it was. The headline is Censorship of Publications Acts 1929 and 1946. The Minister of Justice hereby grants to Mr. Paul O'Dwyer, that it is address in Dublin, this permit to import one copy of each of the following prohibited publications. Candy by Terry Southern, The Dark by John McGahern, an Irish writer, 1984 by George Orwell and Borstal Boy by Brendan Behan, another Irish writer, mm. and it's signed by the the uh, the minister, I think, or somebody for him anyway, and um, it's got the Department of Justice stamp on it. Uh, that's quite interesting. And going back further, when we had Alison Finch on, her question was, "What author has written a series of books?" Oh, based on the Four Seasons. Based on the Four yeah, Seasons, yeah, yeah. and it was Ali Smith. It was. Janice Staines gets in touch with an alternative answer. Oh. And, you know, loved Alison Finch on the programme, so knowledgeable and enthusiastic. But she offered Carl Ove Nausgaard and apologies if I'm butchering the pronunciation of his name. And his books are Autumn, Winter, Spring, and Summer from the Seasonal Encyclopedia series. Well, there you go. So two answers to that so one. So you learn stuff all the time on this show. Talking of which, do just come back to this
1: business about the smells and and how they can be weaponised. Um, do you know about the Stasi in East Germany? The fact they had a smell library. No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's quite sort of topical at the moment with the anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down mm. and that sort of thing. But the Stasi, the East German secret police amongst all the... Because they they kept thousands of records on lots and lots of the citizens. They they were, at one point, they had one citizen watching two other citizens at any one time and one of the things that they found when the wall came down and they got into the headquarters was that they'd maintained a smell library they had these things called smelling jars and in each one of these jars was an item of clothing usually underwear belonging to a person a dissident or someone they suspected they would quite often break into their houses surreptitiously or their cars to steal this stuff and the idea was by having this library of smells if they wanted to track these people down this is what you could use for tracker dogs And there was a rumour a little while ago that the German police, as they are now, were still using smell libraries, were still using smell jars for sort of G8 protesters and things like this. But one extraordinary thing. And the other fact I found was that the Stasi, in a hurry, shredded hundreds of thousands of documents at the time that they knew the war was coming down. And what they left behind was 16,000 bags of shredded files that amounted to 33 million pages. But this is the staggering thing. They're being put back together. It's, there was a project that started in 2007. There are people, and now computers to help them, and, and AI and things, putting together all these strips of paper wow. to find out the names and the records of that of people who disappeared or people that had things happen to them during that particular era. Isn't that extraordinary?
0: That is extraordinary. As if there weren't enough ebooks being published every two <laughs> seconds. <laughs> <laughs> now Berlin is producing all these things
2: also this is going to make a whole industry obsolete shredders will mean nothing well absolutely mean yeah, nothing yeah, now yeah. we have this technology
1: although I, I don't think it's going to become common practice is it I mean it's, it's a very unusual circumstance I mean I wouldn't even like to get to the shredding in my house it's uh, <laughs> there's an awful lot of work there of course the other topical thing that brings us back on point for the subject that we're discussing is the fact that Alan Moore has been on social media He's advising new authors to self-publish now mm. because, as he puts it, the big publishers are rubbish. And, and that's quite interesting. I mean, you kind of expect it from Mal he's always been a bit of a rebel and a bit of an anti-authority authority well, figure.
0: Well, why but, did you yeah. self-publish? Sure. Because you're very well-connected. I mean, you worked at Amazon, yeah. <laughs> for instance. Yeah. Why did you choose yeah. that route? For me, the
2: simple answer to that is that I, I really wanted to experience the soup to nuts process, meaning from beginning to end, having met some self-published authors, non-fiction ones, at Amazon, particularly Honoré Corder, who wrote You Must Write a Book, um, which is a novel all about the reasons you should get off your ass and, and do it, and... Um, and met the people who helped these books come to, to life at Amazon. I really wanted to, actually after I left Amazon, be that person on the other side who, uh, who who makes it happen. It does sound very attractive being managed and acquired and represented and all those good things, and I wouldn't say never, but I'm going to self-publish the next one.
0: But it's really hard. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> loads of self-published books are, let's be honest, number one, they're rubbish, Yeah. and number two, how do you attract... When there's so many of them being pumped out... Yeah. How, do you, how do you attract attention well, And the third yours? factor
1: as well is, is the lack of gatekeepers in mm-hmm. the, in the fact that not only do you not have someone who, first of all, is saying this actually isn't good enough for publication at this time, because it could be made better. And secondly, you don't always have
2: editors and proofreaders and things like this on board. And this is where choosing your beta readers is the most important step to tackle this. Um, and the best advice I read was do not choose a parent, a partner or a best friend to be your beta reader, because... With the best world in the world, they might be great um, sort of proto-editors, but you will not be able to listen to their criticism with, you know, clarity because it, you know so much about their tastes. So I chose four beta readers who I knew were, two, three who were keen on sci-fi and one who is the real-life subject of Olivia uh, to read my book. Partly I wanted her to read it so she was okay with how I portrayed her. <laughs> and that, that helped um but i'm afraid that is what know, did they say that what, uh, what was the most difficult thing they said to you the most shocking thing for me was realizing that my antagonist fileria the the mad scientist in the smell of good decisions was uh, not fully realized when i thought i was finished i had spent so much time on the an- the protagonists um, mm. and i really needed to flesh her out and
0: that was a shock but ended up being a lot of fun to address it's lonely though isn't it it is lonely writing this and and <laughs> and and being in charge of the process as well yeah
2: yeah, no, it is. Um, especially, you know, for me, uh, I love storytelling. And I, I had been acting as an amateur for a while um, and not getting parts, I think, because I'm terrible at accents, um, which I try to improve. can give us an accent. Nope, 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 nope.
0: <laughs> can you give us an English accent? Pour some
2: brandy in that tea in been away. You've been away so long. Oh,
1: yeah. well, there's twangs. There's, there's yeah. little San Fran twangs in uh-huh. there now. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting there, it's getting
0: there. <laughs> but with, with your book, Steve, well, in the past you had people come on board then and the team grew you were part of a team then putting the book out like with when you were with Pan Macmillan
1: oh yeah 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 well, well with, with something like Pan Macmillan which is you know it's part of the big five there I mean the minute you're signed up you've got an editor who, who drives the whole thing through for you they put it out to copy editors and and um, to structural editors and proofreaders and that sort of thing. But there's also an entire marketing department that gets behind it right from the outset.
0: So you feel you've got company and you support? You
1: do, you do. I, know, I mean, they organised a sort of launch party where they invited lots of people from London bookstores to come in and have a, a, do a quiz night, which I hosted. Because I was working on QI at the time, that was kind of appropriate and the book had a lot of interesting facts in it. And, and But they also produced like a sampler of the first two chapters. And they threw that out to bookshops. And it's it's wonderful
0: not having to do everything. And I didn't have to do
1: anything. Turn up to these events and get the manuscript up to speed. That's all I had to do.
0: And go look at me. I'm an author. And
1: and of course, in those days, you got an advance as well. You got some
0: money. So if you (laughs) do it, if you do it on your own, then you're on your own.
1: You are. You are on your
0: own. Except when you have to manage. You know, as you were saying, like self-managed. You're you're having to be in charge of all this and have all the stress and. If you don't do it, it's not going to happen.
2: Right. you got to make some hard decisions, um, not only about how much you can take on with your day job um, and by when you can do it, but how much money you're going to spend um, from beginning to end to do
0: all of that. Okay, well, that's good. Let's talk about some money then, yeah. because people in publishing hate talking about <laughs> money and specifics.
2: Yeah. I'm glad to break that. So <laughs> let's, let's
0: break that. <laughs> so the problem with some people who self-publish, they don't get outsiders in to work on their text and improve it. But you did. You hired I in did. talent to make it better. Yeah, I
2: started with the beta readers, and um, to be honest, I, you know, I, I hope I didn't take advantage of them, but I paid them with a $50 Amazon gift card. <laughs> that's what I gave them. Okay. I think it was $50. All right. Well, they were doing uh, you a favor, yeah, and you did. Yeah. yeah. And you said thanks. <clears throat> and I said thanks. And uh, and thanked them in the book, of course. Um, and that's important. Um, and then, really just by... Oh, no, I spoke to Honoré, the author I spoke of, about uh, best editors to find, and she recommended one who was busy but recommended another, Amy Tegan, and she was my biggest expense, but definitely worth it. Uh, I then ran a competition for the cover on 99designs.com, um, which was so much fun. Giving the world of designers on that site a brief uh, and then seeing what came in, I think it was the most enjoyable part. I decided I would have chapter break art, so I hired an illustrator recommended by a friend, um, a young woman uh, fresh out of college, Um, uh, who did the four illustrations for the book. That's quite unusual, having illustrations in a text book.
0: Not not bad, unusual. Yeah, yeah.
2: I just thought it would be fun. Um, And a copy editor, who is also Susan, who's also the subject of Olivia (laughs) um, in the book. And I also, uh, my best friend, very kindly, who's a a great designer, put together my website. And, you know, there was a little bartering along the way for different things. So how much
0: do you think you spent in money? Sure,
2: total, uh, uh, it comes to around... $8,500, Eight thousand five hundred dollars. That's about Something six thousand like, five hundred pounds, right. roughly. Yeah, well, that's, a it's lot of, that's
1: a lot of money. You know, a, lot, a lot of people couldn't afford that. Uh, you know, it's, it's especially if you know they're the traditional starving artist in a garret trying to make it as a writer.
0: Yeah. It's also, also it's interesting because I don't want to talk much about Unbound. We're both published by Unbound. Mm, yeah. And you have to raise money there, and an equivalent to what you have probably works out at about somewhere between seven and seven and a half thousand pounds mm-hmm. gross that you have to raise. it's not an exact figure but that's and, and sometimes people say gosh that's so much money which it is you'd be better to just hire in all the talent yourself and save lots of money. There are various logistical problems with that. Who do you go to, and, uh, and, and how do you know how to do that? Yeah. But leaving those aside, the money difference, the figure isn't that much different Not to do it properly, from yeah. what you spent. No, which, which was interesting for you
2: when, you when you told me that. And honestly, I, <laughs> my budget was, this is what I can save every month and put aside. Uh, plus, you know, I, I got a, a small chunk of change on top of my salary one month, and I'm like, great, I'll put that straight to the editor. That that was me. But, so this um, is
0: a a labor of love, I guess, for yeah. writers in general. Otherwise, why would anyone do it? It's <laughs> completely <laughs> a mad thing. For sure. So, what do you think about the actual money making aspect of it? Because it's a product and you're selling it. Yeah. So that
2: was an interesting point when it comes to the you know setting the price uh, on Amazon. Oh, yeah, how, much, how much is it? Uh, it is 13 dollars, I think. So mm-hmm. I'd have to look at the UK price. But um, I never set out to make even anything resembling a living from this. My goal is actually to become a successful screenplay writer in my spare time. So I've, I've written a screenplay based on the first book. Um, I'd love to be, get to a point where I could sell that, where I was represented by an agent to do that. So it's actually relatively easy. That comes back to something
1: interesting that angela mcmahon said when she was on the show where she was saying that authors should be trying to get as many works out there as they can with yes. their name on the cover because yes. you create a kind of a mm. kind of gravity if you like that, that traction in the market that people yeah. start thinking i've seen that name before somewhere and the more you get out
0: there the more chances and, and get the master spotted. of that is mark dawson i know that you're aware yeah, of his yeah, yeah, inspiration yeah. so he has maybe three thrillers a year He's Mm -hmm. self-publishers, he's like an industry.
1: Yeah, and if you look at the shelves, it's Dawson, 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 you know, so constantly... Very, very popular, He he starts to get into your consciousness, you know, you start (laughs) to realise that, hey, this guy must be good, look how many books he's got out.
0: So you've got this book and people can read it, Mm. how do you make sure that people know about it? You've worked in online world, you're in California, so I would have thought you'd be the master of social media, but you're not on Facebook. No, No.
1: I know. I was looking for you. What's going on?
0: (laughs) This is a bit strange. I
2: I think Facebook's been listening to me over the last two years because um, I tell people who say, I've got a book in me, but I don't know how I'd ever find the time to write it. I said, well, I I thought that too once, and the biggest step I took was to come off Facebook because I was a genuine Facebook addict. Within 30 seconds of waking up, I'd be scrolling, scrolling, finding out how good or bad my life was compared to everyone else, getting up depressed and then getting on with my life, Uh, I realized that I didn't want to do that anymore because I wanted to get this done. Yes. Um, So I came off Facebook. I didn't abandon social media altogether. Um, And when it came time to promote the book, I created a series of video tips for other self-published authors that I put on LinkedIn,
0: um, which was a lot of fun to do. And I got a lot of great feedback. That's interesting. So rather than saying, I've got a book, I've got a book, I've got a book, you're going, here's something, you're giving yeah. useful resource for other people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I drank enough of the Kool-Aid at Amazon to to agree that it is a lot of fun.
0: But so, but going back to that specific yeah. thing about how do you publicise it, yeah. so you're not doing it on Facebook. I, I get <clears> the irony that to be able to write it, you have to leave Facebook, and, and maybe a lot of us could learn from that, but then to publicise it you then have to use social media. And it's a little bit hypocritical to hope everyone else is going to read your messages when you don't even want to do it yourself. Absolutely.
2: So a lot of people now say that Instagram is a better tool for for marketing your book. And the great irony is having finally published, I decided to bite the bullet because Instagram won't let you run an advert without having a Facebook account. I can get back on Facebook.
0: So you put the videos on LinkedIn. Yeah. Do you think that you have gained sales from that?
2: For sure. In my professional network, which spans a whole bunch of different companies and countries, I know that people have said great tip, I'm going to read your book. So yeah it it worked a little.
1: Going back to the scrolling thing, I knew I'd read something just recently about how much we scroll when we're we're sort of addicted to Facebook and things like this. Someone sat down and actually did a lot of work looking into this and worked out that we actually scroll between 71 and 74 feet a day. <laughs> okay, if you take the mean of the two figures, it means that you scroll about five miles per year. So if you just turned 25 years old and you got your first smartphone when you were 11, that means you've scrolled 70 miles. People are obsessed with it. They, it, it does take up so much time, and that's time you're not writing. That's why I never play video games because I didn't have enough hours in the day for writing anyway. So it was so, mm. yeah, it's interesting. I do have this sort of love hate relationship with mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter. If I'm honest, mm-hmm. the only reason I really stay on them is because that's where I promote my gear. But are there other ways of promoting it without those? You
2: see, well, there's, yes. there's
0: completely off social media, yeah. So, um, Comic Con, yes,
2: right, that so, was my big goal, um, because I knew I wasn't going to be spending a lot of time on social media. Was you talking about San Diego Comic Con, yes, oh, I... isn't it amazing? I
1: went, I went once and oh. it's, it's to. It's the most extraordinary. You do a whole thing.
2: episode just on that. You could. I would. I would have considered myself lucky to get to any Comic Con in America, and there's practically one in every state now, if not more. And there's villain cons and so on, and uh, <laughs> superhero cons. But I happen to know a chap called Justin Hall, who is the uh, author of a, an anthology of queer comics that I brought in with me, who knew someone at the Prism. LGBT so let's let's give him a
0: proper credit. This is called Booth uh, Theatre yes. of Terror: Revenge, Revenge of the, of the cream.
2: Queers, and it's uh, edited by Justin Hall and William. O Tyler and it came out just in time for Halloween this year and that's it's kind of
0: graphic,
3: graphic yes, yeah, as graphic in graphic stories. pictures
0: yeah, and pretty, it's probably, some, some graphic, graphic pictures graphic
1: novel as opposed to graphic
0: content I think it's no, graphic content, content. content. <laughs> no, <just laughs> graphic content too <laughs> and yeah. graphic content, yeah.
2: so Justin put me in touch with the Prism uh, non-profit that has a booth there in the main hall of Comic Con and that's I, I used that as my benchmark once I knew there was even a chance of getting there I thought well this is from, from there I'm going to work back and I'll, I'll be ready for it I mean, I'd been before, but to be there as a creator with you know Patrick Stewart promoting Star Trek Picard over there, yeah. and Tom Cruise over there, and like is insane.
1: There's nothing else like it, is there? No. I mean, because I, I got a chance to go back in 2005. That was the year that um, 300 came out, and there's all these very ripped young men wandering around just as Spartans. So that was that was a bit of a surprise. You, you fitted right in. I'm, I'm, let's be honest, I'm more of a beer barrel than I am a six pack. But the costumes, they really go for it. One of my favourite moments was, was waiting, queuing for a burger. And there was a guy who'd gone full Hugh Jackman Wolverine. And he had these knives, these blades, super glued to the back of his hand. And he was trying to eat this burger without taking his own eyes out. That's what I, I took a great photograph of that. It's such a weird multi-genre event because they were, they were advertising the Watchmen film uh, at that time. So they had the owl ship there that everyone was going in and looking around going, ooh. But just across from that, there was Lou Ferrino signing mm-hmm. autographs. Next to him was a Playboy bunny who was signing autographs. Next playmate. Next to that, there was uh, a bunch of people from the British, you know, the, the revamped Doctor Who uh, sitting there. And it's it's and comics kind of make up a very very small part of it these days. It, it
2: feels like that, um, literally physically. Um, but speaking of signings, uh, the only tip I have for anyone who goes to Comic Con is if you're going to autograph alley, which is where all these oh, mostly yeah. former TV stars um, are signing their pictures, just be really sure to only look in the eye the, the faces of the people that you really want autographs from, because I personally will never get over dashing the hopes of the bionic woman after accidentally looking poor at Lindsay! Her, poor, poor Lindsay, Lindsay. <laughs> and then keeping walking and I, I felt like I crushed And myself. of course
1: they all charge as well. We're so yes. used in this country that people give me autographs for free, but you can actually say you can have an autograph alley. They all charge it. depending on how famous they are. You know, Bill Chapman's going to ask a lot more money than mm. maybe Lindsay Wagner. Mm. And um, I like and, yeah, that about you. You can, catch you. The eye. you can spend all your money there.
0: H- hurting the bionic woman. Wow. But but presumably you had your own desk.
1: Yeah.
0: And people were speaking or ignoring or looking in your yeah. eyes and then going, Oh no, I caught his eye. Which is, but were they? Yeah. Were you selling there?
2: Yes, I was selling there. I had and how was that the selling? It was fun. Uh, it's also, you know, I'd, I've never really worked in retail, um, which might have been my closest experience to prepare me for that. I, I was a barman in a pub when I was at college, but uh, you are trapped in that booth. <laughs> There's no okay, place yeah. for you to disappear into unless you're going to the store. Like,
0: I quite like the idea of having to be exposed and yeah. and talk about what yeah, I do no. and persuade people. And I know you, Steve, you do it to audiences, I guess. Yeah, I I'd, I'd be happy to do it to audiences, yeah. audiences, but I tend to do it more one-to-one. Yeah. As it turns out, that, that works pretty well.
2: It does. And I, my favourite moment was a, a teenage girl who ran up to me because she saw the poster for the book, which features Daryl and Jorge kissing in the stall. And she just burst into smiles and said, I'm so glad that someone is writing gay science fiction here in this corner of the hall. Um, I'm writing gay fan fiction myself. And we just had a lovely conversation for about 20 minutes.
0: All right. I want to ask you a little bit about that. So the so most books that I read, um, they may have gay characters, but it's a heterosexual world.
3: Yeah. yeah.
0: Generally speaking. And one of the things that I find interesting about that one is that it's a gay world, pretty much. As in, lots of the people in it are gay. They're gay businesses, gay this, that, and the other. Um, that just... In an unremarkable, that's just normal way, and and there's some heterosexual characters as well, and I like the way that it was kind of flipped around. It, it's a bit like if I usually read books in English, and occasionally there'd be a foreign character. It's like it's a book set in France, so everyone doing completely the same things except in French, mm. and there might an English character might pop up, mm. and uh, I found that refreshing. I don't know why that it, it's not a big deal at all, but it, it, I it's. Seems a bit unusual. I guess she maybe found it unusual because she thought, oh, thank goodness somebody is doing this. Yeah, money
1: well, it's not unusual in some places, certainly some parts of San Francisco. Well, even in this country, you know, go somewhere like Brighton. It's not unusual depending on which part of the city you're in. So
0: you're just literally reflecting life.
2: Uh, Yeah, that right what you know um, truism is I happen to live in San Francisco where being gay is accepted by way more of the population than it is 60 miles to the east or uh, 60 miles to the north Um, and I love San Francisco and this is partly a love letter to the city I call home and I wanted to reflect back a, a world to the rest of the world where gay people just like straight people make incredibly important decisions to move the action along regardless of the so, sexuality
0: so, they might, so when, I've been to some bookshops in London that are kind of special speciality bookshops mm. and it will be LGBT literature yeah. or you might get a section in a bookshop so where you live is there such a thing as that or is that just well they're just it's just books
2: so yeah it's just
0: stories why would you suddenly categorise it in, as if it was mm. a specialism or a, a ghetto or something like the that. number
2: of gay only kind of bookstores book uh, run or uh, content filled bookstores has definitely shrunk Um, and I think you know one of my characters works in one um, in in the book and as I say you know the the avalanche of the popularity of uh, both online book selling um, and the continued problem that gay people have in rural America where they wouldn't find anything like a physical bookstore that sells these Mm. products means that the web has become the the medium of commerce to buy these books. Yeah, you kind of hope,
1: you wish, don't you? You kind of hope that it's it's a normalising of things, so that there's no such thing as a gay bookstore. There's right. a bookstore where there will be some gay content. Mm. Yeah, you so know, you, and yeah, but that seems to be certainly in America. It's been much more online than it is actually physical bookshops. Here, I think physical bookshops are pretty good for it at
0: mm. the moment. Well do you feel in in the vanguard of something, or just it's it's a book? I'm a writer. It's nothing special apart from, you hope, good writing. But or do you feel you're a standard bearer for, <laughs> in a cause sort of a
2: way? Well, you threw a phrase at me when we first started talking about this, which is hope punk. And maybe I'm segueing a little here. Hope but, punk, um, <laughs> yeah. You heard it here. I, I had not heard of hope punk before you, you mentioned it to me, so I started reading about it. And uh, I think if we take as true that dystopian science fiction is still in its heyday and has a lot more leeway to run, then... Hope Punk, which, or Hope Sci-Fi, which could be its antithesis, is not that common. So maybe, maybe I'm a little bit in the vanguard.
0: And do you find any support, uh, I guess in a mercenary way, trying to sell your book, mm. from gay organizations? Uh, do they adopt you and say, oh yeah, you're writing about this, support this yeah. guy, or... Do they think, well, <laughs> make up your own mind like you would with anything else?
2: Yeah, I mean, twofold. But one, uh, I'm so lucky that PRISM, the, the LGBT comics and graphic novels nonprofit, has invited me back for WonderCon in Los Angeles and uh, Comic-Con next year. So, yes, uh, briefly. Um, I did pitch myself to gay-focused outlets, uh, didn't get any responses. But I think, to your point, Steve, um, it's only once you have certainly more than one thing out there yeah, that yeah. anyone you know, we'll start to care. And, you know, when Alison was speaking with you, she said said the same thing. Like, you've got to have a a number of titles out there. And
0: I'm I'm realistic. (laughs) Jake O'Kelly, the author of The Smell of Good Decisions, is in the studio with us. Hello. But we're also joined by someone else.
1: Hello. Can you hear us, Andy? You're joining us on the phone. I can. Hello. Yeah, I'll introduce you first of all. Um, For those of you listening in, this is Andy Chapman, Andrew Chapman, who's an interesting story. He left a a well-paid job. ...and a career to go and live in a caravan and be a writer. I mean, what kind of madman are you?
4: Oh, I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing this. It seems insane.
1: (laughs) Now, the reason we got you on is because um, you wrote a... uh, Well, you've written several books, and they've all been self-published. The one I read most recently is The Accidental Scoundrel, which is a great story, very funny, uh, about a guy who gets engaged to uh, a woman and then discovers that as part of coming into her family... He's got to join this club of eccentric. How would you describe them? They're kind of eccentric aristocrats who've got their own little let's steal things club. Is that
4: the best way of describing it? It is. Yeah, they've um, they've got all the money they need. They can they could buy anything they want, and so uh, they try and steal the things that you can't buy just for their own amusement.
1: What a great story! (laughs) It's a great book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now. Now you self-published this. I mean, what was yeah. what was your journey to there? Had you tried traditional publishing before?
4: Um, I had sent out the Accident Scoundrel two uh, and the previous book to that, which was called Tripping the Night Fantastic, to a few agents, um, and I got a few comments back um, saying they enjoyed it, but there's you know they don't really see a place in the market for it, um, and I was uh, getting the idea that there's as far as comedy is concerned, it's a bit of a dead end in the traditional publishing world. This is a very familiar story to me.
1: Very familiar story to
4: me. Yeah, exactly. It was very sad, I think. Um, So I just decided to uh, make my own cover, format the book and put it on Amazon and uh, sort of learn that process along the way. Um, Yeah, and it's been an interesting journey. I've had both the books turned into audio books as well, which I uh, managed to do through ACX. All right, did did you read them? uh, no, I didn't. Um, ACX um, is a place where you can put up a sample of your book and then people audition for it. Um, you can go into a 50-50 royalty share with the uh, narrator and the producers uh, and do it that way. So you can have an audiobook produced with no money up front. It's uh, just the same as, uh, you know, it's a very cheap way of doing things. I think that would interest
1: a lot of people listening in, don't you, Paul? I think so.
4: Yeah, ACX.com. I think it's might be owned by Amazon. It's totally <laughs> well, important. We'll everything else is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Should we
0: have a, yeah. hear a bit of the book? I could read a bit. Uh, sure,
4: that would be great.
0: <clears throat> okay, so here we are. Chapter 1, The Accidental Scoundrel by Andrew Chapman. Sometimes you have to stop and look at yourself. You have to grab yourself firmly by the shoulders and ask, why? Why is this happening? You are a responsible adult in charge of your own life, so how on earth did you get yourself into this mess? Aside, this sounds like it's about me. Anyway, getting back to the book. (laughs) Unfortunately, such introspection requires time to ponder. At the moment in question, I didn't even have time to flush. There I was, standing at the toilet with my pyjamas round my ankles, when in walks a man with the intent to do harm. It's a great bother, being killed. It really is. It's frustrating. Imagine it. There I was, happily urinating away in the dead of night, when suddenly a man begins a full and unwarranted attack. I mean, really, there must be better things an assailant could be getting on with. Yoga, embroidery, sleeping, amateur dramatics, filling their own car with exhaust fumes, anything that doesn't involve the harming of me. Perhaps I'm somehow to blame, who knows. Either way, adjustments to my situation clearly needed to be made. Being drowned in a toilet is not something I take pleasure in, and it is certainly not the way I wish to uncoil my mortal spring. In the throes of death... The automatic instincts of self-preservation set forth a plan of retaliation. My limbs reacted accordingly on my behalf and my brain, having made the necessary arrangements, sent a message to my lower left limb and had a foot deliver the message directly to his balls. Clomp! What a satisfying sound. His thick fingers tightened in my hair and yanked my head out of the toilet. In retrospect, kicking him was actually a bad move. He slammed my head hard into the toilet bowl sending a shower of yellow water and smashed oh. ceramics all over the bathroom floor. I had destroyed a toilet with my head. Quite a boast, I'm sure you'd agree. How this incredible act of violence didn't kill me is a mystery. I lay like a molested fish on the cold, wet tiles, blood mingling freely with the toilet water. And I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I would. I would. <laughs> yeah, that, Bravo. that was very well It was read. good, wasn't it? It was nice. Striking.
1: You see, the thing about this that, that struck me when I read it is this is as well written as anything I've ever read that's traditionally published in the shops. It, it's nicely done. Uh, there's a good story. You know, the syntax is good. The, the structure of the story is good. And it, it's really interesting because, I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier on the podcast about mm. Alan Moore pronouncing this week that people should self-publish rather than go to the big publishers because they're rubbish. And the other thing Alan Moore said in his little speech was that don't get hung up about the fact that some people get published. That that means that they are better than you because they're published by the big the big guys. Because he then points out, he then does a list of people like Dan Brown. He said, no, Spice Girls got to number one." He said, "It's not a, it's not a guarantee of quality. The fact that someone <laughs> made a lot of money or they've been published by one of the big names or have become famous." He said, "You know, just write, write every day, and be the best you possibly can." And and that seems to be the message that we're giving out to everyone at the moment who, who wants to get a book published. But um, what we're particularly interested in at the moment is on this chat today is that what your experience was like. How did you find the whole self-publishing process? Because it's a lonely uh, world, isn't it? Writing's lonely anyway, but it's a lonely world beyond the writing.
4: It absolutely is. But, um, I mean, I, I was very lucky that I'm involved in a group of comedy writers, and so we, I've had a very good support group. And it's also meant I've had a a large group of beta readers to help filter out the spending mistakes, and even though a few sort of stay there. Uh, those pesky beta readers the, again, see? They're
1: very
4: useful. Beta readers are incredibly useful because we don't have the luxury unless you pay a lot of money of editors and copy editors and uh, things like that when you're self-publishing. So um, you can come across a lot of books that would be excellent, but um are let down by uh, editing and things like that. But um, I was very fortunate that I've got a very... like. Uh, some very talented writers that I'm friends with that can, you know, free of charge, happily read my works whilst they're, you know, in progress and point out the small flaws. But I think that's... You do hear time and time again that beta readers are very important. Um, The actual process of um, putting a book on Amazon is incredibly easy, Um, as long as you are quite good at formatting. I, i formatted both my books that are out using Word, Word is notoriously difficult, especially when it comes to really basic things like putting page numbers in the right place when you don't want it to start on page one. But once yeah. you figure it out um, to, you know, get through the niggles of Word uh, to create the, you know, the right margins and all the rest of it, and um, uploading the, fa- the the files using uh, Kindle Direct Publishing, the KDP, it's really very easy. Um, yeah, the, the only difficult side of self-publishing is a. Uh, getting
2: the word out there, let your books exist. Sorry, Jake. Yeah, Andrew. Hey, it's Jake. First of all, congratulations on the book. I am so excited to discover a new book here in the studio, but I totally agree with you on the formatting side. Um, That was my biggest bugbear. While I was self-publishing, there was actually a bug in the system, which I didn't know about, which was also a frustration. (laughs) And I remember finally getting it right with about 2% left of my laptop in an airport, um, which oh, was also God. the day of my deadline. <laughs> like, if I don't do it by now, everything else is going to fall apart. Uh, and that was, that was about three weeks of frustration. Not my full-term job, but every day, like, an, you know, another interaction with every other day with, with KDP. Um, so I feel you. I feel you.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Andrew, I wanted to ask you, so in the process when Jake, he hired experts to edit his book, and get the text the the best that could be. And it it did cost uh, a lot of money. He was saying maybe £6,500 overall costs in producing it. Now, I wonder, when you look at yours, is there anything in it that you think, I wish, you know, maybe it wasn't possible and you couldn't afford it at the time, but Mm -hmm. I wish I'd had a bit more guidance on this or, or a, or a bit, bit more money more, to
1: be able to do this
0: so is, is there any way that you would have liked to enhance your finished product in a way that maybe you weren't able to because of the uh, route that you took
4: the um, the most important thing uh, at the point of purchase at least the book cover and um, to get a decent book cover is it can be the key to having a successful book we were talking um, about this earlier, have, yeah. I didn't have the money to do that so um, the book cover, if you look up close, is a bit pixelated because I made the book cover on paint on MS Paint uh, myself and so that's the least ideal way possible because I don't know how to use Photoshop Um, I don't think the covers are bad and I I quite like them but um, if I had the money I would uh, definitely uh, pay to have one professionally made I think that can uh, definitely change the way a book is received. Yeah, fair one enough. It
0: does.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, we were saying very much the same thing earlier. And in fact, one of the things you weren't privy to the conversation beforehand is where we were saying about the value of having a cover where the title and the general sense of what the book is about is obvious from something the size of a, of, your, of your thumb. Because that's yeah, how people exactly. are going to see it on Amazon. And it's really important to get that design right.
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: so what's next for you? What are you working on at the moment?
4: Uh, well... I'm friends with a lot of comedy writers, and they thought that I had a, quite a halting awesome future in writing funny novels. And so when I turned my back on comedy, but temporarily, uh, to write a horror novel, they were all a bit miffed. But that's what I've been doing. <laughs> um, for a lot, last year, I've been writing horror novel, sort of like a British Stephen King,
3: mm-hmm.
4: nostalgia heavy, coming of age uh, story called Shelly RPG. RPG, um, which I've uh, finished. I've spent quite a few months. Um, Rewriting it and rewriting it with the help of uh, beta readers and uh, things like that. Um, it's already getting some good tracks, and I've submitted to a bunch of agents, and I've already had one request for the full manuscript. Um haven't had any rejections yet. I think I had one rejection.
1: That's great. And,
4: great. Yeah, yeah and uh, I submitted the first page to a, a one page punch up where Juliet Ewers from Orion, the associate publisher there, um, gave it a glowing review. So at the moment, everything was that fantastic but promising yeah Congrats.
1: but would you consider i mean if if i mean i'm not going to jinx it and say that if none of this came off but just yeah. as a backup plan would you self publish again do you think uh,
4: if i couldn't get uh, if i couldn't even get an agent at this point um, then yeah i would i, I wouldn't want, i wouldn't just leave it in a drawer i would give it the, the right amount of time and i'd do everything i could to find an agent and try and get a publisher if i failed at that i would absolutely self publish again um i don't think you're likely to make lots of money and be able to do it full-time very easily being self-published. But, I mean, it's what I love doing. I think most writers don't do it because they want to get rich. They don't it because it's just something that they just do, you know.
1: Just driven to do it, yeah, absolutely. I know yeah, exactly so that I, yeah, feeling, and I think so do most writers.
3: Well, listen, yeah. thanks
1: ever so much for joining us on the show. I know it's no, been a, a double effort because you're dying from both a cold and having had an operation <laughs> on your foot. But thanks yeah. very much. Every success with the new book. And yes, thanks. thanks for joining well, us. Thanks, thanks indeed. No,
0: thanks, problem. thanks a lot.
1: Right,
0: bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And with the other thing we were going to talk about was writing about sex. Because that's... I mean, there are bad sex awards. It's so difficult. People do such a cringy job of it. And I know I have bottled it in the past and kind of had people, you know, leading up to it. And then there's a little break... In the action, and then it's afterwards.
1: Yeah, I, I'm the same. Okay. I've, I've, yeah, I am. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely because, I, and I think it's it's not so much that the subject embarrasses me because it really doesn't. It's that thought that I'm going to do this in such a way that people are going to look at it and go, "Oh, that's cringeworthy. That's I know. awful." And you know, it doesn't help that you know, there's so much cringeworthy sex writing. I mean, God, one of the most successful podcasts in recent years is my dad wrote a porno. Yeah, which the whole thing is based around a guy reading a terrible. Porn book that his dad has written Mm -hmm. uh, in his retirement.
0: I'm glad to hear about you, kind of admitting that you've ducked it because there's a lot. There's a lot of dogging in your books, but there's no explicit.
1: Well, I'm writing comedy, and and there isn't much comedy in people actually having sex. The fun bit is all the bits going wrong, you know, and, and tripping over each other, or, or you know, the guy being found dressed up as a. A, a giant panda, and the costume has been ripped out. The front's been ripped out of his costume, you know, and things like this. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's comedy in that, whereas mm-hmm. there isn't much comedy comedy to be had in the actual sexual act. Okay, okay
0: so you, but you have written you've there's yeah. sex in your book.
2: There's a couple okay. of sex scenes. In so the first book.
0: before you got to it, when you were you know doing the story, mm. and and why shouldn't there be? It's just normal life. Mm-hmm. Did you hesitate, or did you think I'm obviously going to be writing this? It's not a yeah. thing, or, or did you sort of go? Mm.
2: I didn't, because, um, spoiler, the two gay men uh, do become attracted to each other, and I knew that ahead of time, and... You know, I enjoy living in a city where people feel pretty relaxed about sex, whatever gender they are or sexuality. Um, yeah, but there's
0: one thing living it. Yeah, it's another thing writing it. You having to write it in Absolutely. a non-cringy way.
2: Yeah, and my biggest fear was that my 90-year-old mum, who's in a book club, would read it and never speak to me again. So I actually gave her the page numbers when it was out and said, "You could skip ahead here, mum." And she, so I waited with bated breath. Two weeks later, and. And I said, so what do you think, Mum? And she went, well, that bit where you talk about Trump, I think that might get you in trouble. He might come after you. <laughs> I don't even use his name. I just allude to the president in a way that might yeah. make it obvious which one I'm talking about. Uh, so it didn't offend her. So that that was, it sounds silly. That wasn't my only bar. I mean, you know, my bar was to, um, to describe it in a way that was fun, that had a bit of comedy in it. Because I think, you know, the best sex I've had has had a bit of comedy in it. And the best sexual humor that has been written for decades has some... Humour in it. Yeah, yeah.
0: What kind of good writing about sex oh. would you point to or be inspired by?
2: I'm inspired by Armstedt Mopan, who wrote Tales of the City. Uh-huh. Um, and he didn't. Uh, okay, I'm, someone's going to correct me on this, but I don't remember him writing very graphically about sex. Right. It was more about attraction. Yes. Uh, and this was a few decades ago now, when uh, the Tales of the City was published first of all as a serialized um, story in the local paper. And gay men on on the trams would fold the newspaper over to Tales of the City that day if they wanted to attract another gay man on the other side of oh. Oh, okay, yeah. the tram. Uh, so it was used as a kind of gay semaphore. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say... I, I would never say I write like I said because he's my icon and idol, but um, I was drawn to the way he uses humour in, in his books. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. that's
1: interesting. Because it's funny, when I think... I was thinking about this before coming on the podcast, and I was thinking that... It's very rare I find a very well-written sex scene in a book. It does happen occasionally, but not very often. But I do quite often. I thought about films I'd seen which had had great sex scenes. Mm. The one that instantly came to mind was The Tall Guy...
3: it's it's a romance
1: between Jeff Goldblum and Emma Emma Thompson Thompson, and there's one sex scene in that where they absolutely I'm in stitches watching it Uh they absolutely trash his apartment because Uh they are rolling on the floor pulling stuff off the tables she's on the piano and it's going (laughs) boing 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 (laughs) and all the noise and and it's just the most gloriously funny joyful sex scene I could it was the first one that came to my head Mm. and it's hilarious Mm. what's the worst one but it's also two people having sex
0: what's the worst Tim Footman gets in touch first of all I should shout out to Emma Summers who said not sure if I want to avoid or allow myself to listen to this episode of We'd Like a Word uh, because of what we're talking about at this part um, Hiya Emin. I know that you've tuned in um, but anyway Tim Footman says what's the worst uh, sex scene you've ever read uh, bonus points if it's in a sci-fi book
1: Well there's a whole and I'm trying to remember the name of the author it'll come to it it just popped out of my head there is a whole genre or a subgenre even of self-published books on Amazon of people having sex with dinosaurs yeah yeah oh uh, like like taken by the T-Rex and things like this <laughs>
3: can,
2: some of those are some of the worst scenes ever and i can tell you why there is that subgenre is why? because amazon does prohibit porn and so there's a whole bunch uh, of authors who said i'm going to make my porn and if you just prohibit it between human, human beings it's... i'll just find a way I'll, to get around it i'll then. just sleep with the T-Rex <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. fascinating Shush. and and of course kevin lynch got in touch to say you know what does bad sex writing tell us about ourselves or to ask that question and he handily included a link to the bad sex awards okay. uh, well oh, and I'm going to read you a they're little just bit of one joyous of them. they're just joyous so there are um, you know people like James Frey um, well, Haruki before. Murakami uh, Jared Woodward and you know, most of these we, we can't read but I'm going to read um uh, uh, and see if we get away Could with I read this them one. And
2: not get you sued or no? That's no, gonna, that, that, that won't happen. No one sued. There's no problem really. It's, it's whether we'll take it off air. Okay.
0: T- okay. No, no, no. I think that's a good idea. Right, Jake. Why don't you read <laughs> a bit of this one, uh, and then I'll read a bit of yours. Okay. Right. And so. then I'll read my favourite. Okay. Bit, a bit. So um, you can tell us what it's from. It's this one, Scandrels, and it. It's quite short and just okay. goes over the page there. Right. I've
1: actually read the Scoundrels books. Okay. Well, at least the first two. I've got them at home. Okay, they're so, actually
0: quite good. So here is one. This is from the um, Bad Sex Awards. This is a, a, a finalist.
2: And this is Scoundrels The Hunt for Hands Clap by Major Victor Cornwall and Major Arthur St. John Trevelyan. Her vaginal ratchet moved in concertina-like waves, slowly chugging my organ as a boa constrictor swallows its prey. Soon, I was locked in, balls deep, ready to be ground down by the enamelled peppermill within her.
0: Enamelled peppermill? Yeah, yeah. Enamelled? know, enamelled.
2: Yeah. Uh, no, enameled. It enameled sounds quite pepper pepper
0: Heath Robinson-esque. <laughs> right, does. I've this got one. Glorious, so this this is not uh, a bad one. So this is from The Smell of Good Decisions uh, by Jake. And uh, Daryl and Jorge in a club and they've gone into the loos and they're going at it big time. And I'm kind of sk- skipping ahead past a lot of it. And um, then, uh, they're, you know, they're, you might think maybe they're done by now. And here we come into this bit. Sweat appeared to be dripping off the walls at this point, and a couple of the club security guards looked nervously at each other. A friend of the DJ's began tossing out frozen popsicles to the crowd, most of whom caught them with grateful gasps. Some of the dancers were so overheated they would have walked barefoot to the closest store for one of the frozen treats at this point. Two men came into the restroom but there was no way Daryl or Jorge could hear them. Daryl spun off Jorge, turned around and shoved him back against the stall wall. I'm not done with you yet. The vibrations in the floor grew stronger and stronger with each verse of the song. Inside the stalls, a screw suddenly blew out of the corner of one of the walls surrounding Daryl and Jorge, and then two more on the opposite side. Jorge simultaneously had swivelled Daryl around so that he put his hands on another wall and bent over to give Jorge leverage again. As a singer, belted out the last words of the song, both side walls of the stall flew away from Darryl and Jorge, one crashing into a sink and the other onto a man who was feeling like he must have drunk all of the sugary soda and was trying to piss next to them. Daryl and Jorge surveyed the wreckage around them as Jorge pulled slowly out of Daryl's ass and both burst out laughing again. Darryl checked on the man to their left, who was leaning to one side, no longer peeing. Are you okay? He took the man in his arms and studied his face to see if he was dangerously high. The man nodded and zipped up. Daryl and Jorge also zipped up just in time as a throng of dancers burst into the restrooms and looked agape at the destruction in front of them. Just a minor earthquake, Jorge shrugged to the newcomers and pulled Darryl by the hand out of the stalls. It's not
1: cringe worthy, is it? It's quite funny. (laughs) Thank you. I'm sitting here laughing. Uh,
0: It's it's a a bit like your um, tall guy Emma Thompson, Jeff Goldblum, absolutely wrecking. Now, now
1: compare that to this. Now, this is the this was the 2015 uh, Bad Sex Award, which is run by the Literary Review. This was the 2015 winner. It's by someone quite famous, Morrissey. He won it for his book List of the Lost.
0: This is the worst ever.
1: And this is his sex scene. Eliza and Ezra rolled together into the one giggling snowball of full-figured copulation, screaming and shouting as they playfully bit and pulled at each other in a dangerous and clamorous roller coaster coil of sexually violent rotation, with Eliza's breasts barrel-rolled over Ezra's howling mouth and the pained frenzy of his bulbous salutation, extenuating his excitement as it whacked and smacked its way into every muscle of Eliza's body except for the otherwise central zone. That's all one sentence. <laughs> Isn't whacked that, and smacked. Yeah, whacked and smacked <laughs> his was it? way bul- into every bul- muscle of body. Well. Bulbous salutation. Oh, it's bulbous salutation, yeah, yeah, extenuating his excitement.
0: But does that not put you off sex for life? They should pre- They should preach that in conservative places and people are going, yeah, you're, actually, you're right, I, I want nothing to do with that. Yeah,
1: you're right, sounds we- beastly, sounds beastly. Uh, interestingly, though, I mean, we, we, we're, we're very quick to laugh and, and talk about bad sex awards, and this thing happens every year, and it always gets lots of press coverage, a couple of years ago, uh, the Erotic Review made a point of saying, well, where's the Good Sex Award? Indeed. And the Erotic Review decided they were going to start their own in 2016. And I've been hunting around trying to find what the result of that discussion was, because Erotic Review said they were going to do it, but I've not seen any competition or any result. And
0: I'd be interested to know whether
1: it actually got anywhere. So if anyone out there works for Erotic Review and you want to tell us whether it's going to happen...
0: And that would be an excuse <laughs> to talk about more sex next week.
1: It would. Uh, and
0: Janice Staines has got a question.
1: Is writing about sex in the LGBTQ community any difference to writing about straight sex? I mean, it's... It's quite difficult to ask that of a gay man, yeah. because you, I mean, I don't know your history, but you may know, not have experienced the other side of things,
2: but yeah, but, yeah, but is it any different to right? He is a
0: writer. He is an imagination.
2: Yeah. yeah and uh, I guess, you know, without becoming straight for a day and giving you a real answer, I'd say that I feel like there's a bit more responsibility and pressure in some ways as a gay writer uh, to present gay sex because it is demonized by so many of mm. the population in different countries. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Uh, so if you duck it, people might be a bit sniffy thinking that you're uh, yeah. lacking in courage.
2: You can, you can fall afoul both sides of the line. So if you duck it, your, your target audience, which in my case is not just gay people, but definitely uh, a number no. of them, um, will accuse you of ducking it. Uh, and if you get too explicit, you will absolutely alienate some of yeah, yeah. the rest of the population. Um, but if you don't do any, if you don't pick a lane, um, I think you're 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 chickening out. Um, if sex is part of your story, you can't pretend it's part of your story, but never allude to it. Mm. Okay.
1: Flipping that over, I just wonder whether if a straight writer has got gay characters, mm. how comfortable they'd be writing a gay sex scene without the actual experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That would be, I'd find that difficult. I, I have no. to say because well, you
0: write it and then take advice.
1: Yeah, I think I'd have to. Yeah.
0: Take advice, I think.
1: Interesting, because, I mean, I mean, if you want to fully represent the community, then, you know, books are going to have gay characters that are written by straight people. And mm-hmm. and if they end up in relationships, you know, that sort of thing's going to be something you come across. So, again, I suppose it's another example of, of, of where the normalising of things and shared knowledge about everyone's lifestyles actually can really benefit everyone.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's also write what you know versus use your imagination. <laughs> well, there is that as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and research and that. But, I mean, this... We may have given the impression that uh, this book is disproportionately about sex. It's not. It's there really not of, no, no. There are a couple of sex scenes in it. Yeah, the right. main thing that it's about, apart from the whole changing how people smell and, mm-hmm. and this kind of superpower, it's it's a chase novel. It's mm. a pursuit. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like the fugitive, except there are four fugitives and the the baddies chasing them. And there are also inventive um, points of tension and stress around uh confinement and kind of psychological torture and kind of room 101 type stuff mm-hmm. and uh, some pretty imaginative and ingenious messing with people's heads you know just when you think you've got away and they're after you again yeah, and, and you realize
1: we're locked in a room with this man then, <laughs> and, and just point that out to you, you that know, window yeah. doesn't look too stable and just when people get to safety
0: uh uh-huh, and there, so that, I mean, that's, that's a, a bigger, much, much bigger part of it. Um, so if you like uh, that kind of chase thriller book, you know, this is for you. And so I've read the full thing, of course, myself, mm-hmm. but uh, the bit that I read out, it, as well as having humour, mm. I guess it's kind of matter of fact. When you're describing action in a book, you say what happens and you don't suddenly become all coy about other Matter of fact, things that happen, right. you just get on and talk about them in a clear way or in whatever tone you want, yeah. which is what you've done. Yeah. And I, I like that. And also, it slightly took me by surprise because I suppose sometimes people have a little drum roll or a build up or a, mm. oh, oh, just to warn you something's happened, mm. somehow changing tone as if they feel a little bit embarrassed. But it just kind of seamlessly carried on in people's lives as it was a normal part of living, a normal part of life. And I like that. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I, it appreciate it. I mean, exactly, it should yeah. be
1: said that there's all, there is a lot of online pornography. There's an awful lot of people, yeah, well, this
0: people writing it, this pornography. pornography. This, this
1: yeah. isn't stuff. Oh yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that yeah. there is a lot of online pornography. There's a lot of people writing sex stories involving and revolving around sex mm-hmm. that's published online in in sort of like writers' groups and blogs. And there's stuff like slash fiction, you know, where you you, you take people didn't. Fifty Shades of Grey started as a slash fiction. It was a book, wouldn't it, written about the characters in Twilight, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she turned it into Fifty Shades of Grey. So there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. There are people out there, a lot of people out there writing about sex. But as you say, when it gets into the mainstream, we all get very British about it, don't we? Well, well, I'm not going to mention that beastliness. You know, it's.
0: I but think, what, it, what language, what nouns should you use? Yeah. With which words? that's not normally a problem.
1: Well, it's it's done, I mean, it's done properly.
0: There are literary novels mm. out there where it is done properly. Um,
1: you know, Mirakami, despite actually getting one nomination, actually mm. handles
0: it quite nicely. Um, the line of Beauty, Alan Hollinghurst, I seem to remember he writes decent sex scenes uh, that are just part of life and avoids this coyness. So yeah, he, I, writes, he
1: writes both gay and heterosexual sex scenes as well, doesn't
0: yeah, he? Yeah, so anyway, I'm being... I will try and take inspiration from <laughs> from you, Jake. And thank you. We'll try not, not to be so sewn up about things. <laughs> you know. It's I a very British problem. Have Idiot. proper sex scenes in in future.
2: So, so
0: what's this week's brain teaser going to be? Every week, our guest comes up with something. Over to you, Jake. There's yes. no
2: prizes or anything. No, we, we not just at like all. to challenge the audience. <laughs> and this week's brain teaser is about self-publishing. What a relief. <laughs> um... Which famous English author self-published her book in 1901 for children?
0: So which British author self-published her book for children in 1901?
1: I think I know. But if, do you know? That's the important thing. Because if you think you do, get in contact. Our email address is we'd like a word at gmail.com. Although because we can't use apostrophes in email addresses, it's wed like a word at gmail.com. So do email to us.
2: And we may send you the last Jammy Dodgers.
1: Yeah, the there's not going to be any, There's <laughs> only three left.
0: <laughs> now nah, they're not getting them. They're for me. I have my eye on them. The
1: jammy Dodgers are staying here. So there you go. The books we talked about today. We've had J.C. Kelly's The Smell of Good Decisions. And we've also had Andrew Chapman's The Accidental Scoundrel. Both of which
0: you can get from Amazon. Thanks, everyone, for listening so far. We'd love to hear from you, obviously by email if it's a competition answer, on Twitter and Facebook, or if you want to suggest books we should look at, writers we should talk to, or other people involved in words. Or subjects. But in the meantime, this has been We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Do I get another Jaffa cake?